following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So we are doing a series right now entitled The Family of Abraham, trying to understand what Abraham and his descendants have to do with us. And I spent this week trying really hard to think about the story of Jacob in preparation for today's service. But what I found was that I could not get the story of Isaac out of my head. As I mentioned last week when I preached a sermon on Isaac, that story is one of the hardest ones in all of the Bible for me to understand, to accept, to interpret, and to preach. And I suspect that much of that is true for you as well. You may not be called to preach it ever, um, lucky you, but it's probably still challenging to you. And so I wrestled with that passage uh, kind of like just enough to get to a place where I could preach a sermon about it. But it's continued to nag at me this week. Oh, but I should have added that. I should have said this. Was I clear about that? Uh, am I even right about the interpretation I landed on? I just, it just constantly bothered me all week long. And I know from talking to at least a couple of you that the story has continued to be on your mind this week as well. So here's what I'd like to do today. Lest I be accused of breaking my promise to preach on Jacob, I'm going to give you a 99-cent sermon on Jacob. I mean, it's not even going to be worth the whole dollar. And then I'm going to slow it down a little bit and give us a chance to talk about the Isaac stuff and the sacrifice event a little bit more dialectically. That means in dialogue with each other. Because here's the thing. Um, if we want to live into our thematic thread for the year, now remember our thematic thread for the year is shaped by the words of Scripture. Now, we want to be shaped by the words of the Bible. We want to shape, be shaped by its stories, by its histories, by its mystics, by its mythics, by its heroes and heroines and villains. We want to be shaped by its poetry and by its prose. We want to be shaped by its divine inspiration and by its human voice. We are committed this year, even more than usual, to the words of Scripture and for making them, allowing them to shape who we are and who we're becoming. And for me, okay, this is impossible to do by myself. I would propose that that is not a quirk of my personality, but rather something that's innate to the human condition, which means that it's also true for you, that you can't do it by yourself. And so if we want to be shaped by the words of Scripture, sometimes, in some ways, we're going to need each other's input and participation, and that's part of what it means to be in community with each other, which is one of the five foundational values that we celebrate at Artisan Church Community. So, I want to hear each other's thoughts on that difficult passage. Fair enough? Can we do that? All right. So, here's the 99-cent sermon on Jacob. All right. The first thing that we learn about Jacob is that he is a deceiver. 
He's the second born of twins. He came out after his brother Esau. He came out grasping Esau's heel. And grasping the heel is a Hebrew idiom that means he's a liar. And Jacob, in Hebrew, means basically heel grabber. Grabbing the heel is a Hebrew idiom that means deceiver, and Jacob's name means heel grabber. It's kind of like naming your baby shifty eyes, right? (laughs) Well, a lot of babies in the room. Did it ever occur to you to call your baby shifty eyes? And he lives up to his name. I think anybody named shifty eyes or heel grabber in Hebrew would probably end up being deceptive. Right? If you if every time you get called for dinner, you, you hear the words, Hey liar, come to dinner. You can probably you probably live into that identity. So uh, in adulthood, Jacob steals his older brother's birthright and his blessing. These are two separate gifts that the father, the patriarch, would bestow on the older son, the oldest son to continue the patriarchal line, blessing and the birthright. And Jacob steals them both. Now, Esau is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And apparently Isaac, the father, isn't either. So it wasn't terribly difficult, it appears, to steal these things. But he did it. He's a sneak and a liar. Now, to be fair to Jacob... His parents probably set him up for failure, not just in the name that they gave him, but in the way their house ran. Every parent knows that favoritism in the household is, is a bad thing, but Isaac the father loved Esau more than Jacob, and Rebekah the mother loved Jacob more than Esau. So you can imagine this caused tension not only between the brothers, but between the mother and father. And so family life was not really great from the beginning, I'm guessing, for Jacob. And then when he gets married, he marries, not only does he marry two women, but the two women are sisters. You would think growing up as a twin in a household where the parents showed favoritism in opposite directions that he would have known that marrying two sisters was a very, 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 very stupid idea. But he did it anyway. And predictably, it ended up causing him and his household a lot of strife. The sisters are never happy with each other. And because children are so important to the strength of the family line, they are constantly arguing and complaining and at each other's throats and competing about child-rearing. Who's going to have more kids by the patriarch? For the rest of their lives, this is a problem for them. And Jacob makes things even worse because... He doesn't just father a child with one of the wives handmade, but with both of them. 
So it's like Lord Grantham having daughters or sons with Lady Mary's lady's maid and with, what's the other one's name? This is so bad. It's the Leah of the family. Uh, Edith. Edith's lady maid too, right? Oh man, Downton Abbey's coming back eventually, right? I just need that British public television soap opera so bad. So Jacob is a colossal screw-up, and that's probably not a strong enough term to use. And the amazing thing about this story, if you ask me, is that God keeps his promises to make this nation great through Jacob, in spite of Jacob's many failings. This is one of those times, I think, when we should be deeply encouraged that the Bible is such a human book, or maybe humane would be a better adjective. There's no attempt here to whitewash Jacob, to omit the parts of the story, and there are a lot of them that might make him look bad. There's no attempt to make him look like a flawless hero when he so clearly is not. We should be deeply encouraged, I think, because we are just as screwed up as Jacob is. That goes for me. God forbid you ever think, oh, he's the pastor. He's got his act completely together. He'll never do anything to disappoint me or offend me or hurt me. It goes for me and it goes for you and it probably goes for your mom too. <laughs> Notice I did not say for my mom. But your mom is probably just as messed up as Jacob. There are no flawless heroes in the story of the human race. There aren't any. And yet God works through Jacob anyway. So here's my 99-cent sermon in two sentences. All right? I'll put them both on the screen for you so you can see them. It's going to be super clear and easy. God will use you in spite of your failings. But he probably won't spare you from the consequences of those failings. That's the second part. God will use you in spite of your failings, just like he used Jacob. But he probably won't spare you from the consequences. And if you look at the life of Jacob, God's promise is true. And it carries through. But there are consequences every step of the way for every stupid thing that he does. He spends most of his life estranged from his brother. He stole from. There's discord in his household with his wives, his family, and his children. Problem after problem after problem. God did not remove the consequences of Jacob's shoddy behavior. But God did use him in spite of his failings. That's the lesson that Jacob has for us. God will use you in spite of your failings. He's probably not going to spare you from all the consequences. And by way of transition to the other thing that I want to do this morning, here's one more. This one's not on the screen. You just have to listen. God eventually changed Jacob's name. And when you think about the fact, this never dawned on me until this week, I don't know why, when you think about the fact that Jacob was given a name that's pejorative, shifty eyes, heel grabber, liar, sneak, deceiver, whatever 
whatever the phrase ended up being, he was given a name that was pejorative and uh, gave him a lifelong identity of bad behavior, poor attitude, and flawed character. God eventually changed his name. And he changed his name to Israel, which would become the name of the entire nation of people that God made through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob the deceiver, shifty eyes Jacob, became Israel. Abraham is the father of the nation. Jacob is the namesake. And what does Israel mean? Jacob meant deceiver. Israel means he who struggles with God. I love that God changed his name. And I love that he didn't change it to Superman. (laughs) He changed it to Israel, he who struggles with God. God's entire chosen nation is named after somebody who struggles with God. And, of course, the whole point of this family of Abraham thing is that we are part of it. We're part of that family, not biologically, but spiritually, through the grace of Christ. We are Israelites in one sense of the word, and we will continue to struggle with God. And that's why I want to come back to Isaac, because I'm still struggling with God about this Isaac thing. Now, I'll take a quick poll. If it ends up being true that my sermon last week um, erased any concern you had about the whole Abraham sacrificing Isaac thing. Please raise your hand, and if everybody raises their hand, I'll stop talking. We'll sing some more songs, and we'll have soup earlier. But did I fix every problem for you with <laughs> Isaac and the sacrifice last week? I would have felt good if one person had raised their hand. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't expect anybody to. Let me very briefly recap what I said, and then I want to do some question and response about this topic. What I said was, um, uh, in this story where God tells Abraham, take Isaac up to the mountain that I'll show you, and sacrifice him on an altar, uh, the, the, the son that has been promised to be the one through whom I will continue to fulfill my promise to make a great nation out of your family, Take him and sacrifice him. Abraham does it. He gets all the way up the hill, raises the knife, and then the angel tells him, stop. Look behind you. There's a ram in the thicket. Sacrifice that instead. Because you haven't withheld your only son whom you love from me, I will make of you a great nation. He reiterates the promise that was given to his father. What I said about that story is that I believe, based on some things in the text and other things that I've read and just kind of my study, that, I, that Abraham went up the hill, up the mountain, trusting God, not as an act of blind obedience to do something which he knew to be evil, but because he was trusting God, would not 
make him walk back down the mountain alone without his son. He trusted that God would make a way. Either the thing would not, go th- would not happen or he would raise his son from the dead. Something would happen to, to, to make this promise continue to be true. And so my argument was basically that this story is a story about faith and we need to redefine faith. Faith is not blind obedience, even when it flies in the face of everything we think we know and understand about the world and even how God has set it up, but rather an active walking trust in the promises that God has made, that he will fulfill them, that they will be made true in us. Somehow, even when we don't see there could be any way that that could happen. That was the type of faith that I think Abraham demonstrated in taking Isaac up the mountain and even in raising the knife. And I think that's the faith that we ought to try to embrace for ourselves. Not one that says, you know, I'm going to follow and it doesn't matter if it bothers me. I'm going to, you know, because that leads to, I mean, planes flying into buildings, right? And the crusades. But rather a faith that says, I believe, I trust in the promises of God and specifically for us the promises made to us through his son, Jesus. And I'm going to, leklaka, go, walk to the place that I don't know where it is, but I'm going to do it. That was the, that's a two or three minute summary of what I said last week. So, as I said, and as you just basically admitted by not raising your hand, that didn't solve the thing for you. It didn't solve it for me either. I'm continuing to kind of like, oh, what do I make of this? So what I want to do, and this is, uh, just spoiler alert, this is not going to solve the problem for us either, but what I want to do is give you a chance to make comments ask questions, whether they're clarifying questions about what I said or questions about the text that I didn't address or anything in between, and I'm, I will do my best to respond to them. Notice this doesn't say question and answer. <laughs> I will respond. <laughs> That's all I can promise. Um, so I need somebody to volunteer to be the, the microphone MC to carry this around because uh, we need to hear each other's questions. Josiah, you want to be the mic MC? All right. Josiah, we'll bring you the mic. Raise your hand if you have a question that you want us to talk about together. Josiah, I'll bring you the mic. You can ask the question, and we'll see where it leads us. And we'll do this for, you know, until the, the time of the sermon would normally end. Uh, Doug has one over here, Josiah, to your right. So this is going to be a fakey kind of question. So what do you think about the idea that we jump to the conclusion that Abraham knew this was evil. He was surrounded by a culture where sacrifice of the firstborn mm-hmm. is just in every religion you look in. And so from within that context, he doesn't have... Again, it's, to me, it's a lesson in reading into Scripture from yeah. a 21st century stance and yep. saying, oh, man, he knew immediately this was totally out of bounds. That's a great point. Doug is kind of challenging the idea that, that Abraham knew that's in his heart to be wrong, to sacrifice his son, because child sacrifice existed in that culture. And it absolutely did. There are archaeological digs that prove this, uh, and I don't need to go into the gruesome details, but you can tell by what you dig up from the ground that somebody ritually killed a child. Um, and so that's, that, that makes my interpretation a little problematic. 
because I've said that he knew it was wrong to do this, and maybe he didn't because that's, what, that's the way the world worked. There is some tradition that, that uh, says that this is, this is God marking the end of that kind of horrendous behavior. This is God taking Abraham up to the brink of child sacrifice, like all his neighbors did, like all the pagan gods required, getting him right to that point and then saying, stop. That is not how it's going to be for, for the people of Yahweh. We are not going to sacrifice children. And that, that this signals an end of that abhorrent practice. Um, there are some problems with that interpretation as well, but there's problems with all of them. Otherwise, it wouldn't have caused me any trouble to preach on it. <laughs> uh, good question. Thank you for asking that. Uh, did I see a hand here? Yeah, Johnny. Yeah, I understand it. In a coming off of that in a similar way about, um, I mean, thinking about the cultures around there and this being more of a a story about God and what God is like than about Abraham and Abraham's faith and a story for the Israelites to see that this is, is not a God like the gods around them. This God is different. Mm-hmm. This is not a a God who demands um, firstborn children, who demands these things, but a God who very dramatically uh, very dramatically provides a substitute or provides something something else so that this is this sacrifice is not required and I, I find a lot of meaning in that. Uh, that this is God revealing God's self in a different way hmm. and, and showing the people that this, this is a, a different God and a, a, different, a different kind of people, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. It's a beautiful articulation of, of that interpretation. Um, I think, was, where was the other hand? Was it, was it you, Scott, or was there somebody else? Uh, why don't we? Do, I think I saw Scott's hand before, and then we'll come to Shane next. And um, uh, could you elucidate some of the problems with that interpretation? Because it seems pretty neat and tidy, and I like it. What's, what's <laughs> <laughs> we're done here, right? Um, I knew you were going to ask me that. What are some of the problems with that interpretation? Uh, oh, I'm on the spot and I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> Does somebody have an answer? Joanna has an answer. She's going to answer that question. Oh, go, go ahead. No, I, nothing, nothing I'm saying is an answer either, so it's okay. No, I was just going to say, um, and this wasn't a question. I didn't mean to jump in on that question, but um, um, it's more like a, a thought. I guess the most moving part of the sermon to me, I mean, there were you know, a lot of important points, but was when you um, kind of described the metaphorical connections between the um, the death of Jesus and the story, yeah. and I hadn't connected those before, and I just was kind of um, struck again by how rich of a connection when we don't um, 
divide the what we call the Old Testament scriptures from the New Testament scriptures and yep. actually layer them together. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, so you're drawn to the Christological interpretation that I sort of tacked on at the end as well. Which yeah, is, I don't know. I don't know those terms, but yeah. <laughs> I was. I you know, it, I definitely teared up the way that they were yeah. connected, and I appreciated that. I guess. Yeah. So if you weren't here last week, what I said is that that. You know, Abraham and Isaac walked three days up the hill, and Jesus walked up a hill three days' journey. Um, the, the, Isaac had to carry the wood on his back. Jesus was carrying a cross on his back. The, the, the parallel imagery is very powerful. To come back to your question, Scott, um, I think one of the interpretive problems is that the text follows up and doesn't seem to say that or affirm it. Uh, in fact, to me, the most troubling sentence in the whole passage, because it screws up all of the interpretations that I wish were true, um, including the one I gave last week, perhaps, is that, that God says, you've done what I asked you to do. Because you haven't withheld your son from me, I now know that you love me, essentially. And that affirmation of Abraham's willingness to go through with this is just as challenging and problematic for me as the, the command to do it in the first place. And I think it makes some of, it doesn't make it impossible to make the interpretive move that we just discussed, but I think it challenges it a little bit. So that's one. I'll, I'll remember the others and I'll get back to you. But. Um, Shane. Um, so my question in response to like the, the part of how like reading Jesus into this, this story and God saying, like, I'm not a God that requires the sacrifice of children. So it, then I really struggle with is did God want Jesus to die, or is uh, Jesus a victim? Mm-hmm. Like, was is Jesus an innocent victim that God didn't want to die, but He did? Yeah. Or was it God's intention all along? That, uh-huh. I know that's a big one. It is a big one. It's very. It's probably bigger than the Abraham Isaac thing, actually. I mean, it's, it's connected. But like, because of this story where He says no, like this is not the God I am. Yeah. But then later, He is. His own God. son goes and 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 it goes through with it. But, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I cannot answer that question fully enough to satisfy anybody in the room in the amount of time we have. Um, there's a... Oh. <laughs> we are going to do a series on what theologians refer to as the atonement, which is how is it exactly that Christ's death and resurrection makes us right with God? And so that will come up... Um, that's uh, after Easter. So we'll talk about that. But it's a long way to wait. I don't want to keep you on pins and needles the whole time. Um, uh, I would say, and this will tip my hand about my atonement theology as well, I, I am troubled with theology that says God murdered Jesus at the cross, essentially. That's not a very charitable way to interpret what, what the stream of theology actually is saying. But that's how I sometimes feel like it comes across, right? God had a big old vat of wrath against everyone in this room and every human being that ever lived. And he's so, so so mad, (laughs) full of hate toward people that he had to pour that out on his son. And he killed Jesus, right? This is, again, it's not a very charitable way. I'm being, I'm hyper. I'm using a little bit of hyperbole, but this is, this is the stream that, that you're, I think, troubled by as well, Shane. 
I think there are other ways to explain Christ's death. And then, of course, the resurrection, you know, um, makes things nicer, <laughs> too. Um, that's probably the theological understatement of the year. The resurrection makes things nicer. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't think it was... I don't think it was... I don't think you can say simply that God killed Jesus on the cross. I think that human evil killed Jesus on the cross. I think that the evils of empire killed Jesus on the cross. I think there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. Now, did he intend for it to happen from all eternity? I would say yes, but I can't unpack that right now very well. Again, um, that's unsatisfying, and I'm sorry, but we need to go on to the next question. (laughs) Um, uh, Actually, let's... um, Franklin... Uh, I just thought it was kind of odd that he tested his faith in this way because he tested, like, Noah to build the ark, like, and Noah had faith to build the ark and that the flood would come and all that. And um, he tested, like, Moses to cross the Red Sea and, like, trusting Mm -hmm. that the waves wouldn't, like, fall down and drown them. Uh, But... I found it was odd to test Abraham to sacrifice his own son when he, like, already had two good ways that didn't put his son at risk to test faith. I just thought that was sort of odd. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's that's an A-plus question, frankly. Um, Or comment, I should say. Because you didn't phrase it in the form of a question... I'm just going to say, I thought that was odd, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. God seems to be... Oh, man. It's it's hard to hold on to a theology that says God is always in control and then see that, like, a lot of the stuff seems to be God trying things and it not working. (laughs) Right? At the very least, I think we have to say that we humans have the capacity to get in God's way a little bit at least. Can I say that without getting, like, run out on a rail? Right. Yeah, very, thank you for that insightful thought. Um, Mario, please, and then we'll come up to Dan, and we're probably getting close to the end of the time, but I don't want to, I want to keep going as long as we can. This may be, I don't know if it's just a simple question to answer or if it would be complicated, but it did bother me the most out of anything, um, which was back to Dr. Middleton's sermon. He's talking about the command to go back in Genesis 12, and, um, and it, it seemed fairly compact. It was just go, and then I'll make you a great nation. Mm. Okay? So he, Dr. Middleton talked a lot about that, but it, it's sort of this command to be a blessing, right? And then this angel not directly God, but an angel, right. says, because you've done this, now you get the... Bu- I just, that's confusing to me. Why was yeah. it, in one sense, go, and I'll do it, and Abraham goes, right. and you could maybe make, say it's an extension of the go to continue going with your son, because it's yeah. the same, similar command, go and do the sacrifice. But um, now it's like, because. But how could he know that he had to do that in order to... Right. I'm confused so about the cause it, and effect. It seems that the covenant promise is unconditional at the beginning and then gets conditional as it goes on, correct? Um, 
And I think that we may have a clue in the ritual of circumcision. Right? No Jew now or then would have said that it is the act of circumcision that saves the Jewish people. What was circumcision? Circumcision. It was a sign of the covenant, a visible indication of this relational agreement of promise between Abraham and his descendants and Yahweh, the God of Israel. So there's, it's a sign that this is true. And it's an action of willing choice that the people have to make to identify themselves with this promise. Now, this is not a direct linear connection, but I think that there's maybe a clue there for us. When the angel says, because you have not withheld your son, I will, you know, I will fulfill this promise, which I've already told you I would fulfill, you could read it as, if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't fulfill the promise. You could also read it as, if you hadn't done this, you would not have been able to be part of this promise being fulfilled. Does that make sense? Does that, is that distinction clear? So, because you're willing to do this, this can happen through you. Abraham had my doubts. <laughs> but because you've shown such faith in this way, because you have lek lekah, because you've walked into this place that you didn't know where you were going and you didn't know how it was going to end exactly, but you did it anyway, because you demonstrated that kind of faith, I will be able to make a great nation out of you. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. There's a least a 50-50 chance that I butchered the interpretation and the interp- you know, the, the, what the language actually specifically says. Confession. But that's, that's my first re- reaction to, to the problem that you just raised. I hope that's helpful. Josiah, could you come up with Dan here for, the, for a sec? So responding a little bit to Scott's question of, boy, that was neat, why doesn't it work? and leaning on Doug's point of context. Um, I've heard interpretations that sort of the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament, in some ways hinges around identity. Mm -hmm. Who are the Hebrew people, and how are they different than the people around them? And the relationship with God is a huge part of that. And you you could say how God needs to talk to each people in their place, in their time, in their context, in a language they understand. So asking someone to sacrifice their child is not a language we understand. Right. But as Doug was saying, it was a language that Abraham understood. Yes. And as you were just saying, God may have had his doubts about whether or not that human would get in his way or work with him mm-hmm. and be able to make that promise work. So there is a sort of neatness about that whole story helping the Hebrews understand themselves as a people, that God spoke to them in a way, they responded, and now they are different then. Yep. And so it's, it's that key understanding. And the problem with that is, what does it say for us? Yeah. We can't get something specific out of that. What can we in the 21st century yeah. get out of that? So it is a sociologically, historically neat interpretation. It doesn't do a lot for us spiritually. Right. Yeah. Or emotionally. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. It's a good point. But I, I think it actually maybe does do something for us a little bit. Um, maybe it's a few a few steps removed, but we do graft into the biblical languages, graft into that vine of Abraham's family. So we own the story in a certain sense. We have to be careful that we're not arrogant about that, but we do own the story in a certain sense, or we've, we've been adopted into it, right? Heirs according to the promise. Um, the other thing I think it's useful for, if not 
like if it doesn't make us feel any better, it's still useful for us to remember that we usually have a fair amount of arrogance when we look at the text. We want the text to, to like come straight at us in our 21st century postmodern world and say, this is, this is all mine, right? This has got to make sense to me, and if it doesn't, we should cut it. That's problematic. Um, I th- I, and I don't think we have to do that. We can say this scripture, man, it is really hard for us to make head or tail of it. But what did it mean to them, and what does that mean to us? Which is basically what you just said. I think that's, that's our escape hatch in some ways. Um, but it's also a, it's coming to the text with a certain humility. It says, I am not going to be the, the sole arbiter of what's good or right or true or any of that stuff. Um, doesn't mean you can't think critically about it, but... Um, just say up here with Mike, and then I f- Ken had his hand up too. Why don't you do Ken first, and then we'll we'll do we'll have Mike ask a question or make a comment, and then we'll wrap it up. Just this is kind of extreme theological nerdery, but um, I, I think it has a bearing too. Uh, I'm just curious if you believe that the angel of the Lord was a, a Christophany, that is a pre-incarnate appearance of of uh, Jesus. Because that would it would be it would be interesting if nothing nothing else that Jesus himself was coming to stop Abraham stop the sacrifice mm-hmm. and saying no I am the sacrifice it would be interesting I I don't see any reason to interpret the text that that way myself but it's a good question nonetheless yeah. and we're okay with nerdy theological stuff by the way um, so this is as much a comment that as as a question. Um, but it kind of gets to what Dan was saying about application and what Scott was asking about flaws in the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I find most troubling about, about the interpretation you presented was this idea that God was going to put an end to child victims mm-hmm. with Abraham. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I just coughed right into that. Um, it's all right. And we'll edit that in I think I would know. Um, but, but that God may have done that, but he did it very selectively because later on he will have no trouble, or at least he will have no textural trouble with eliminating the firstborns of all the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those are firstborn children. So um, it's hard for me to jive those two things together. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, so I think that that's kind of, that could be one of the interpretational flaws uh, or, or, or weaknesses, sure. something to wrestle sure. with. But I think the application of, of our time with the story is the wrestling, not the answer. Hmm. I, think, I think the wrestling, you know, I loved, I loved you bringing out the, the idea of Israel meaning one who struggles with God. Because yeah. um, I think that's what God wants us to do. I think yeah. there's a certain part of the, the Old Testament, I hate to say the Old Testament God, is yeah. one and the same, but there's a certain way that God represents himself in the Old Testament that demands you to wrestle with him. Mm-hmm. He, it's almost like he wants to offend you a little bit so that you <laughs> get up in his face. Yep. So, yep. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly bothered by his selective nature of mm-hmm. value that he gives to certain groups of people. Yeah. But then in the New Testament, that the New Testament sacrifices for everyone. Right. That's very weird to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you want to be more troubled, look at what Jesus says about Gentiles. Because <laughs> um, it doesn't exactly appease the problem so, too, too much, at least at the beginning. Um, let me say one thing about your excellent comment, and then we'll probably wrap this up. One way to respond to the, the troubling thing about God demanding the firstborn sons of the Egyptians is to say that that, that is a, a, an act of judgment. Whereas what he's asking of Abraham is not an act of judgment on Isaac, it's an act of sacrifice. Now, that doesn't make it less troubling that God went and killed the firstborn sons of Egypt. But it, they're different. They, you could see them as different categories of things. Same thing, by the way, is probably true. There's another uh, tradition. Um, this is actually a rabbinic Jewish tradition that says that Abraham actually failed God's test by going through with this horrible thing. And it, it takes you back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18, where God's about ready to smoke this place, burn it to the ground, and Abraham says, wait, 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 don't do that don't kill those innocent people. What if you could find 150, 20 righteous people in there? And he kind of talks God down a little bit. And of course, there aren't enough in the end anyway, and the whole city gets destroyed. But there's, there's some interpretive tradition that puts these two stories, the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, up against the sacrifice of Isaac and says, if Abraham was willing to stand in the gap for strangers who are outside the promise, how could he not have at least questioned God about his own son, the heir to that promise? Abraham failed God's test. Now, again, I I want this to be the right one, but you have problems with the affirmation that God gives right after the, the, right after the event. So, um, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting interpretation nonetheless. All right, well, I didn't, I didn't promise that we'd fix everything or make everything okay. As a matter of fact, I think I promised the opposite. Um, but thank you so much. I feel a little bit better <laughs> having talked through a lot of this with you. I hope that you feel... Does anybody feel a little bit better? No. <laughs> okay. Well, we tried. <laughs> oh, God help us. <laughs> I'm going home. All right, uh, let's pray, and then we'll have communion together. God, you gave Jacob the name Israel, he who struggles with God, and we inherit that struggle, if not the name. Thank you for um, being willing to let us do that, and in fact, in, in inviting us into that struggle. Uh, for the difficulty of holding on to faith, and of understanding the story that we've become part of. We will continue to struggle, and we ask for your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as some of you know, I am a person who has um, suffered with and struggled under a significant amount of doubt of my own faith. I've been pretty honest about that. And um, 
what I want to say about that right now is that the one thing that I can never let go of, which I would even go so far as to say, which never seems to let go of me, is Jesus. I'm not trying to be Sunday school about this. The answer is always Jesus. I'm trying to say that Jesus does not appear willing to let me go. And it's Jesus that we celebrate at this table. Normally I say more about the elements. We're running long, and I want to uh, invite you to this table. Receive Jesus here. Whatever else may be screwed up in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, in your life, whatever doubts you have, whatever wrestling you have to do with the text, Jesus is offering himself to you, inviting you to the table of the Lord. It's my great privilege this morning, especially after a difficult topic like the one we just talked about. So come to the table and receive his body and blood, and we'll continue to worship him together as we struggle and wrestle. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.